you must be listening to the Goblin Broadcast Network at gbn.com.com. Amazing! Follow the Path, the Bears Grove Podcast. Adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Welcome to the Bears Grove Podcast. This is episode 34 for January 6th, 2008. Running time for this episode is 21 minutes. Today on the program, I'm going to talk a little about how game design can use rewards to motivate behavior, and I'm going to give three strategies of good role-playing. But first, some news and notes. Well, several podcasts have ceased production since last we spoke, and it isn't because of the writer's strike. Over at the Harping Monkey, the Roundtable podcast sounded its final trump, and the podcast called Misfit Brew has been declared over. Then, just this week, I heard that the Mad Three from Gamer the Podcasting are throwing in the towel. But the podcastosphere abhors a vacuum. There have been a lot of new podcasts formed just recently. The list is too long to go into exhaustively, but here's a random sampling of them. We're We'd Rather Be LARPing, Heroic Cthulhu, The Digital Front, This Modern Death, The Independent Insurgency, The Score, The Goblin Network Podcast, Discussions from the Closet, and The Wandering Yeep Podcast. Man, that's a lot of them. Another podcast I've really been enjoying is Writing for Pay, in part because they recently had a really cool interview with Wolfgang Bauer, one of my favorite game industry moguls. In other news... White Wolf has granted me permission to podcast the short stories I wrote for them. All I have to do is come up with a cool audio ad for them. I'm looking forward to putting that together. It should be fun. That's all the news for now. Next up, let's talk about rewards. In the Game Designer's Workshop today, I want to focus a little bit on rewards. It's no mistake that on the Power 19 Questionnaire of Game Design, which you can find a link to in the show notes, two of the questions are, what types of behaviors slash styles of play does your game reward and punish if necessary? How are behaviors and styles of play rewarded or punished in your game? The reason that those two questions are there is because a reward, or its opposite, a penalty, is a powerful driving force in the overall game design. I'd like to take a moment to bring up a few games and talk a little bit about the reward element in each of them. For example, in D&D 3.5, you are rewarded in the game if you kill things, find treasure, and if you accomplish goals established by the GM. In Pendragon, you're rewarded for taking action in character. Every part of the character sheet represents a mechanic that rewards you in the chance for character trait improvement should you bring an aspect of your character into play. In addition, some rewards are totally random, while others are based purely on the whim of the Game Master. In Marvel Superheroes, you are rewarded with karma points, which can then be spent in an adventure to assist you with problems, or they can be banked and used to improve your character's statistics. In Spirit of the Century, 
you're rewarded with plot points that are quite multifunctional in the game. You can use them to gain narrative powers, you can use them to reroll dice, you can use them to give yourself a bonus, and you can use them to compel other characters' actions. In Primetime Adventures, players are rewarded when there is spent production budget points available and another player thinks what you are doing is cool. This becomes fan mail points and they can be used to give you, a player, more of a chance to control the outcome of a specific scene. In my own freeform game with Cynthia called Ravenflight, the reward element is that there are a number of behaviors her character can adopt that will reflexively reward her with success in the context of her story. For example, if she as a player has her character look below the surface of a problem, she will be rewarded with extra information and a different perspective of that problem. Another example, since her character is usually very black and white about morality, sometimes her character can be rewarded by allowing shades of gray to be recognized and acted upon thus giving her a greater range of options to achieve long-term stability, and proving that her character can be flexible and stretch and grow. Rewards for Cynthia's character frequently have to do with her character being accepted in love for who she is, for her political goals to be successful, for her character's family and friends to be safe and to thrive, and for those her character does not like to not thrive, or continue to threaten her or her family and friends. They're very intangible rewards, but they do help drive the plot to the game. I believe reward elements in a game to be the primary fuel for the engine of the game, and I feel that it is very important for a game designer to keep the reward element firmly in mind when you're going about designing a game. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about what happens when a reward element does not actually reward behavior that needs to be fostered by the game. And I'd do, like to do that by talking a little bit about a game called Vampire the Masquerade. One of the things that constantly used to confuse me about Vampire was the reward element. Although all of the storyteller games gave out experience points to better someone's character in the long run, the behaviors rewarded were somewhat vague. Show up to the game, be a good role player, show growth in the character, accomplish story goals. None of this had a damn thing to do with being a vampire. And in fact, there were considerable punishment elements in Vampire to punish someone for being a vampire. Instead of reveling in one's cool vampire powers, vampire strength, and vampire's untouchability, people were punished in game for killing, even if it was by accident. And yet... Some of the mechanics of the game made it fairly easy to kill someone by going into frenzy, which was a state where the player had no control over the character. So here you are being punished for something that you, as a player, didn't even decide to do. Furthermore, the only behavior that seemed to be rewarded was not living in peace, love, and understanding, but in finding and killing and eating more powerful vampires than yourself. This gave your character more power, this was countered by the punishing force of having all of the in-game Elder powers that be hunting you down for being awful, even though in-game most of the Elders themselves had killed vampires in this very way before. There was a vague mention of something called Golconda, 
but nothing mentioned as to how someone might go about achieving it. So technically, it was possible to be an awful vampire in the story side of things, or at the very least, a milquetoast vampire that never drank any blood, never seduced an unwary mortal, never summoned the creatures of the night to defeat his enemies, but be very well rewarded by the XP system of the game because you were a good role player, and you showed up to the game, and you made the storyteller laugh. This is not to say that I hate vampire, I actually like it quite a lot, but it is to point out how the reward element does not match with the stated goal of the game, to bring about a personal horror story where you, the player, are given the taste of what it means to be the undead. In the end, it is important for game designers to pay attention to reward mechanics, both written and unwritten, to understand how rewards and conversely punishments affect the flow of gameplay and the strength of the story created within. Next up, we have some storytelling strategies for you. In this segment, I want to give you some quick storytelling strategies to use in whatever game you may be running. Before I do that, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about the nature of games and stories. This gets a little deep, so if you're easily bored by game theory talk, you may want to fast forward about four minutes. There's a concept called Story Now, which, as I understand it, means that a group of players sit around a table and create a story from scratch using the tools a game provides without hardly any preparation. Story Now is a participatory dramatic event, not a performance you're viewing or a pre-planned improvisation in which you are taking a role. One good example of this type of game is the game Primetime Adventures. People meet for the game, sit around the table, decide what TV show they'll do, take characters, frame conflicts, and play stories. Nothing is prepared ahead of time. The stories go forward from there. Everyone is getting to know the story all at once together as it comes out. That's Story Now, from what I can tell. Story Now is not how I usually run a game, although I do enjoy running Story Now games, at least I have so far. One example of sort of a Story Now game that I had, although I had some ideas before I came to the table, was the Spirit of the Century game that I ran uh, at Dragon Con. I ran it twice, but and I had sort of a vague idea of what I might do, but I had no characters generated ahead of time, and we created most of the story to start out with at the table. Now, admittedly, there are a lot of story elements in Spirit of the Century that uh, sort of come along, but ultimately, that's, it was as close to a story now um, sort of game that I've, that I've ever run. Usually, I'm a storyteller, and I have players and the players are participating in the shared imaginative space with me, and I have worked out a story of sorts ahead of time. That means I've created characters who are not the players, and these non-player characters are doing things, and the players are typically enticed to involve themselves somehow with these non-player characters, either by pushing those character, the player characters' buttons or by involving them in some way. Then the players decide what their characters do, and I, as the storyteller, explain 
what effect their decisions have, have on the other characters and on the setting as a whole. I act as a tour guide, and I take them around the back lot of my brain through sets that were created for the purposes of supporting the story. I'm performing in this role. I am acting as a writer, director, and producer. I'm performing as a storyteller in that I am not requiring my players to create the setting, to create non-player characters, antagonists, plot lines that don't involve them, and so forth. I've got all that covered. All they have to do is to enjoy controlling their character, the mechanism through which they interact with the story. The only creative input the players have in the setting and the story is if they want to try and insert something through the mechanism of their character. For example, if they want to suggest that their character has a cousin who's a wizard, or if they want to ask that their character already know the bandit who has stopped the stage coach, or if something about their character needs explaining as to why they may even exist in this world. Now, this may sound like a very traditional method of role-playing, and I suppose it is. I'm not apologetic for it. I have enjoyed many, many hours of gaming this way, and so have other people. While I do look forward to finding out more about other ways to play, this is how I play now. So, when I speak of role-playing as a storytelling art, this is what I'm talking about. So that said, let's get on with my storytelling strategies for traditional game masters, and others who may also benefit from them. The first strategy I want to talk about is planting seeds and being patient. It is one of the hardest things to do, but it is very important. Planting a seed in a game story goes like this. Let's say you have as a plot of a game story that a fairy queen is trying to destroy the economy of a mortal world kingdom because she's upset with the ruler of said kingdom. Economies are very large things, it will not be very obvious to the player characters what's going on at first. So, in the course of another story, before you start the economy going to hell story, you as storyteller need to plant some seeds of plot that will pay dividends later in other stories. For example, maybe you can demonstrate that fairies have the ability to create fairy gold by having one of the player characters receive some, and have it turn to pretty flowers at sundown. Then you can also remark at some other point in the story that a lot of the money that flows to the kingdom's coffers comes in at tax time, when all the land rents are due. Then maybe at some point you can give one of the player characters a hard time by having a money changer complain that he can't usually get the same amount of coins in exchange as he usually does. Then as time progresses, you can show strange things happening. Businesses suddenly closing without warning, Taxes going through the roof, tax collectors hitting people on the streets, money becoming slowly worthless as more and more money just vanishes. This is all as you work with other strands of story, other storylines you've developed and which have nothing to do with the economy plot. The patience you need to show is patience not to tip your hand too early and reveal too much of the plot to the players, while at the same time putting things in the story so that the plot development later does not feel bolted on. Another storytelling strategy I want to give you is the idea of promoting immersion through details. When players are immersed in a story, they have an absorbing involvement in it. 
Their minds enter into the shared imaginative space with yours. Human minds are capable of immersive attention, and this is why our entertainment industry is successful. When you are immersed in a book, a game, or movie, the world, life as it is, tends to fall away, and you find yourself interacting with the story directly. You see what is being described, and you react accordingly, even if it's not happening to you directly. Detail promotes immersion, if done sparingly, but consistently. Obviously, it can be distracting to constantly be talking about every visual, aural, and tactile aspect of the environment your player characters are in. But adding one or two details to bring the players more fully into the game by playing, say, a recording of a bell ringing if the characters are in church, or lighting a candle in a dark room if the characters are confronting an occult ceremony. Things like these can assist in immersion. Furthermore, describing the city streets for a paragraph or two helps you create a landscape in which to plant story seeds for the future. It won't work if every shadowy stranger crossing the street and entering the alleyway is someone the player characters are supposed to chase, but if you mention a few people doing so here and there, it will start to draw the player's attention. There is an unwritten agreement between some storytellers and some players that if a storyteller mentions something, it must be germane to the game. I encourage you to require your players to update this agreement and to have them understand that sometimes you're just providing atmosphere, that not everything is to be jumped on. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Other times, a misshapen rock is the Maltese Falcon. You never know. But this kind of detail provides a draw on the attention of the players, and attention is what leads to immersion. The final storytelling strategy I want to talk about today is for you to look at all angles of the story from your side. Do not forget that every character in the story, even the bit players who don't have a name, have their own storylines and plots. Did the taxi driver kill his brother when they were both young and he's still feeling guilty about it? Did the housewife sleep with the milkman? Did the executive steal from the corporation? Pick a story that makes sense in the universe and the story you are currently spinning. Don't steal a player character's thunder, but give the PCs dark mirrors of reflection in your NPCs. For example, the PC mage meets a burned-out old street mage who has had to pathetically get by by selling love charms because his magic has left him. There but for the grace of the arcane go I. Or the smuggler parks his starship in a berth next to one where an alliance ship comes to dock, and he gets to see what happens to other smugglers sometimes as he watches them unload a poor old captured cargo freighter and its crew locked in plastic manacles. Also, don't be afraid to go into your PC's backgrounds and pull out old lovers, relatives, enemies from school, friends, cases of mistaken identity. This is a powerful way to involve your players. Talk to your players and request permission to bring in people from their background so that they can have a say in it too. I once had a player tell me that he was an orphan and all of his relatives were dead from a plague and 
he doesn't like anybody and he doesn't want to be involved with anybody and he has no friends and that's it because he was tired of having, well, of hearing about relatives and other such people from other players' backgrounds. He was afraid in part too. I'll have some more storytelling strategies in the future for you, but thanks for listening to this one. Well, it looks like you've come to the end of another Bears Grove. I am so happy to be back, and I really appreciate you staying subscribed and listening. This podcast is licensed to you under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, license 3.0. If you would like to donate to the Bears Grove cause, send us a PayPal donation at bearsgrove at gmail.com, or you may use the donate page on our website. The music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. And now I say farewell. May your heart soar, your mind blossom, and the fire of your spirit be ever kindled. May your body find pleasure and your soul find peace in this, the new year. And have sweet dreams when you get them. Thank you.